Now, our Father and our God, we thank you tonight for these families that are represented. We know that many are at a critical juncture in their life as to educational options for their children and they're thinking through carefully before you and so we pray for the help and the guidance that you promised you told us that a man plans his ways but you can direct our steps and we look to you tonight to accomplish that to direct our hearts and our thoughts uh, that we might be good stewards of the children that you've entrusted to us so bless our time together uh, may you be honored through it all and we ask in Christ's name amen uh, let me give you a little history of this seminar and how it started. Uh, in 1990, <clears throat> I became the pastor of Community Bible Church. At the time, we were meeting in a, a junior high. Uh, our congregation was very small. Uh, but nonetheless, I came as a pastor with my wife, and we were homeschooling. And so uh, people wanted to know, why do you homeschool? And after a while, we were inundated with questions, and I felt like I was spending too much time trying to answer questions about homeschooling than some of the other things that God had called me to do as a pastor. So I said, look, why don't we just gather anyone who's interested, and we'll answer your questions all at once. And from that, we developed a seminar uh, that we've had about 2,500 families go through now in the last 20-some uh, years. And so you're here tonight as a part of that. Um, and hopefully we will be able to answer the most basic questions that people have about home education so that you can make an informed decision as you seek the Lord. So pull out your handout, if you will, and uh, we're going to jump right into it. You know, God, through Solomon, wrote in the book of Ecclesiastes that there's nothing new under the sun. And some 2,000 years ago, the Sanhedrin was flabbergasted to see that there were some men who were able to speak with great confidence, but who had not been to one of their quote-unquote approved schools. And I suppose today that there's just as many people who are astonished at the byproduct of some home-educated students. Uh, until compulsory attendance laws were passed uh, in America, children were typically taught at home. And you'll see that tonight. It's surprising to some, but actually the genesis of education in America was really uh, at home. Uh, it was an exception to be educated outside of the home. Virtually all of the signers of the Declaration of Independence had not had any formal schooling as we would define it to get today. So getting an education outside of a formal public setting really is not anything new. But what is new is the mass movement that is taking place from private Christian and public schools into the home education arena. Now, as you can see here on the outline tonight, let me just kind of show you, share with you where we're going. We're going to look at first at the history of education in America. You may think, well, this is just academic and not necessary. It's going to help you to gain some perspective and to answer some questions, and hopefully, too, to build some conviction as to why you might want to consider this. We're going to talk briefly about some advantages to home education. Uh, we're going to try to ask and answer the question, is homeschooling biblical? Uh, Roman numeral four, we're going to look at the legal situation for homeschooling. We're going to see that there's three primary options that people have. And then in the fifth section, uh, we're going to talk about how do I get started? If this is something that I, I want to do, how do I begin? And then we'll try to address some questions and answers. All right, so first, uh, the history of education in America. You know, it's helpful to study history. Because sometimes when you look back, it gives some perspective to where we are today. In fact, often in Scripture, uh, God reviews history to teach us lessons from history. And until a few years ago, if you know American history, we led the way. We were like the number one country for nearly 100 years in terms of providing excellence in education. We're no longer there. But people have often wondered, where did it all begin? And, and how did this slow, cancerous growth that has come into our educational system, where did that start? Um, well, let's go back to 17th century America. If you were a Christian then, there's a good chance that you would have agreed with this statement that Martin Luther made, the great Protestant reformer. He said, I am afraid the schools will prove the very gates of hell 
unless they diligently labor in examining the Holy Scriptures and engraving them in the hearts of youth. I advise no one to place his child where the Scriptures do not reign paramount. Every institution in which men are not unceasingly occupied with the Word of God must be corrupt. I think Luther was on track with that statement. People, as we move to a public education system, could not see the wisdom in that statement because we were still enjoying the benefits of a largely Christian society. But as we've moved away from the scriptures, the plain truth of what he's saying, I think, has become so clear. There were some people who were late to get on board with homeschooling. Dr. James Dobson was one. But on the other hand, to his credit, he also was a great help in home educators. I was actually a uh, radio broadcast that my wife heard that Dr. James Dobson was airing in the uh, 1980s that got us reading a book together and contemplating home education. Well, I'll tell you our story in just a few minutes. But Dr. Dobson said this, for many years he was kind of quasi towards you know, public versus private versus uh, home education. But two years ago he said, in the state of California, if I had a child there, I wouldn't put that youngster in a public school. I think it's time to get our kids out. Now he's not certainly the first to make such warnings. Timothy Dwight, who is the president of uh, Yale University from 1795 to 1815, he said this at the beginning of the public school movement. He said to commit our children to the care of irreligious people is to commit lambs to the superintendency of wolves. So as we reflect for just a moment on American history, I, I think you will see how we went from a home-controlled kind of setting to a state-controlled kind of setting. Uh, we started uh, with a very excellent educational system in America, but it has slowly gone down. Some rate is now at 27th in terms of the industrialized nations of the world. But let's go back to the first major date there in your note-taking outline, 1620. In 1620, a time when most students were homeschooled. Uh, the New England colonists and uh, places like Pennsylvania where William Penn was the governor. Uh, they were really originators of the idea that every household should seek to educate their children. Not to mention the godly Puritans and pilgrims who lived during the time of uh, Bible translation and through the printing press where they were strong believers that their children ought to be able to read the scriptures. And so when they came here to the States, they desired not only religious freedom, but they had a burning desire to make sure that their children were able to read and study the scriptures and for its principles to be ingrained in their lives. What did that mean? Well, it meant that most parents taught their children at home with the exception of those parents who maybe weren't as well educated. And then typically the minister who in that day usually held the highest degree, uh, he would engage in the teaching of children. Uh, the whole cliche one-room schoolhouse was really more than a cliche. It goes back to the church house because typically the church house dubbed as the one-room schoolhouse in early America. And it would really be, I think, impossible to overestimate the power and influence the clergy and our Christian value system had um, on the educational system here in America. First graders didn't learn to read with phrases like see Jane run or jump spot jump, but the man of God would teach them verses like Genesis 1-1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The McGuffey reader was the principal reader that children learned to read on. It's ridiculed today largely by humanistic educators, but if you've ever picked up a McGuffrey reader, it's filled with references to God, morality, character building, and so, thing, so, so forth. And so the first grader, the McGuffrey reader, would read statements like this, God made the world and all the things in it. Hmm, that's kind of radical for our day. Uh, but it was believed that the moral character and training of the young mind was essential 
for a safe and sound society. Alexis de Tocqueville came to the States as America prospered. The French wanted to know what was the secret to America's greatness. And uh, after he traveled our nation for a year, among other things that he said, and I quote, America is great because America is good. If she ever ceases to be good, she will cease to be great. And so the, the Puritans believe that moral training and moral character in the scriptures had to be taught in a very pointed way because man by nature was not good, but man was depraved and evil and in need of revelation from God. Second date there on your outline is 1636. 1636, it marks the founding of Harvard University. John Harvard recognized that only a handful of uh, ministers would probably migrate from the old world to the new world and that they needed to begin to train a new generation of pastors uh, to uh, fill the pulpits in America and to spread the gospel. And so for that purpose he donated his library and started at the time what was called Harvard College. For a long time the original gateposts stood, they're now gone, but it said, quote, for illiterate clergy. I was on the Harvard campus just last month and uh, they took the original words and they've imprinted them on a new set of, I say a new set, this set was done in the 1830s, but again, for illiterate clergy. And then it stated underneath what the whole purpose of the school was in its early days. I, it was started to train men to preach the gospel. In fact, for the first hundred years of American history, every single college and university that was started was started by a church denomination or religious group. And so American education in its inception was not godless by any means. Uh, for about 200 years, schools like Harvard, Yale, and Princeton were the primary teacher-trainer centers. Now there was a decay in those schools, but nonetheless, they were the leading schools in the first 200 years of American history. And most of them, if you read the inceptional statements of the great universities, and some that even started in the 20th century. I worked at Duke University for five years as a campus minister. And Benjamin Duke, who gave his land, gave the money to build the chapel and some of those great buildings, if you've ever been on the campus, uh, had a plaque. Uh, next to his statue as to the purpose of starting Duke University. It was a very godly purpose. But most of them had the mindset to prepare ministers and missionaries to preach the gospel. Next date there in your outline, 1647. The old Deluder Act is passed. The old Deluder Act was passed in the Massachusetts uh, Bay Colony. And it was passed uh, and it basically said in every town where there are at least 50 households, um, it is necessary to have some means in which to educate the children. Now it was voluntary, but their thought behind passing this act was to prevent, quote, that old deluder Satan from keeping men from the knowledge of ye scriptures. The principal reason they wanted every town of at least 50 families to have some kind of school was so that the children could learn the Word of God. Now, again, this was church-run. It's not public education yet, but still, that was their mindset. They had, obviously, a different view of separation of church and state as many people do to, than people do today. 1765, see the next one there? Illiteracy was declared rare. According to John Adams, foreigners passing through America and conversing with its citizens discovered the most well-educated people they had ever met. Adams wrote, and I quote, that visitors have never seen so much knowledge and civility among the common people in any part of the world. In addition, he commented, and I quote, a native of America who cannot read or write is as rare an appearance as a comet or an earthquake. Um, the next date there, 1776, obviously a critical date for us as Americans. Uh, at this point, public schools are nearly extinct. Again, at the beginning of our nation, 
1776. There was only one public school, but it really was not public. It was a private dame school. It was public and then it was available and open to anyone, but it was not mandatory. And it was not run by the government or the state in any sense. It was run by, it was a private dame school. And the private dame school system, if you're familiar with it, developed over the next hundred years, usually held in homes taught by Christian women. At this point in 1776, there was no crediting, accrediting agencies, no state textbooks uh, that were required, no teacher certification that was demanded. Parents had total freedom to do whatever they wanted to do with their children. And so you either home educated them, sent them to a, the one-room schoolhouse in 1706. There were some private schools uh, and a number of dame schools. And here and there scattered through the country what they called charity schools that were for the poor. 1805, as we continue the progress here, Unitarians take control of Harvard University. The Bible-believing Christians, though still very much present on the campus, um, lost control of Harvard to the Unitarians. Uh, we have a Unitarian church here in Buford, another one in Hilton Head. Uh, they're very prevalent in New England. Uh, at the basis of their theology, theology, uni means one, of course. They affirm that God was one, but they denied his triunity. And so they denied the deity of Christ, and of course to do that they had to deny the authority and the infallibility of Scripture. And so Unitarians took over Harvard and they replaced what they thought as a narrow God-centered view with a man-centered view. Among other things that they taught, they said man was not basically depraved and sinful by nature, but man was basically good. Um, they felt like education was important, not so much for moral training, but quote, as one leader of the day said, to eliminate ignorance, poverty, social justice, and crime. A kind of the social gospel mentality. If you um, replace the one true gospel, salvation through the death, burial, and resurrection, then you come up with another gospel. Walter Rauschenbusch, of course, in Germany, the father of the social gospel, uh, was having a huge influence on the Unitarian Church here in America, and they in turn were having a huge influence on a number of universities and Harvard being one, and that's significant because Harvard at this point is a real leader in shaping American education. 1818, um, public primary, the public primary school system is started in 1818. Uh, there is a complete reversal of forces in the free market of education and that the Boston uh, establishment really puts forth the very first uh, public primary school. Um, this was the start of beginning to phase out the dame school where again in primary education women largely, Christian women almost exclusively in their homes were teaching children outside of the one room schoolhouse and outside of those who did not do it at home. Well the Unitarians began to put forth another model of public education in 18. 18. Again, it's not mandatory, it's optional, but it's inceptional at this year and people are beginning to move in that direction. Next date there, you see it, 1837. Public education spreads through a man by the name of Horace Mann. Horace Mann, he's appointed the very first um, Massachusetts board secretary over education over education and his role and position is to promote public education uh, not only in Massachusetts but across the country. Up until this time again all education is really private but in 1837 you have the very very first real push for public education in America so this is a really critical day. And Horace Mann, I, I, I didn't know much about him when I was in high school, I was uh, uh, a member of the Horace Mann uh, Honor Society um, my senior year in high school. If I was a Christian then and knew what he represented, I would have declined. But nonetheless, he did more to humanize American education than anyone else in the 19th century. Um, he opposed the pastors of the day and their mindset 
of having a biblically-centered, Christocentric education. Someone asked me just this past week, they said, why is the divorce rate in America gone up so much? They were reading some stats, and I said, the stats are actually accurate that you're reading, because in 1910, the divorce rate in America, only one in 100 couples ever got a divorce. Today, it's approximately 50 out of 100 get a divorce. They said, what happened? In 100 years, I said, well, in 1910, you could not graduate even from a public high school in America without having read the New Testament. It was taught as literature, but nonetheless, it was taught. And so we've moved from a Christocentric, bibliocentric culture and educational system to one that is very humanistic. And so man... Uh, did all that he could to promote that. So he encouraged people to attend graduate universities overseas. They went to Sorbonne in, in, in France, Bonn University in, in Germany, Edinburgh and Scotland, uh, Cambridge and Oxford in England. And these were at the time very humanistic schools. And so these people came back as the quote-unquote experts with their PhDs in hands and took over the leadership of education in America. 1839, another key date, the very first state teachers train, teachers college is established. 1839, the first state teachers college is established. In Lexington, Massachusetts, man was responsible for this. And again, what were they trying to do? They were trying to say, okay, if you want to be a teacher in Massachusetts, you need to go to our approved school. And they were beginning to develop a mindset. We, we want to shape and control what teachers teach. Again, it's very, very small at this point, but nonetheless, the, the seeds are being sown. 1849 marks a really key turning point. Protestants support public schools. Uh, for the first time, Protestants openly support public schools. Now, at first, they're very fearful of public education. In fact, in 1849, a very fiery bishop by the name of Bishop Hughes in the Anglican Church here in America said what he thought about it. He, he wrote this. He said, to make an infidel, what is it necessary to do? Cage him up in a room, give him a secular education from the age of 5 to 21, and I ask you, what will he come out if not an infidel? They, the public school proponents, say their education is not sectarianism, but it is. And of what kind? The sectarianism of infidelity and its every feature. So he said, you, you really want to shape a godless kid? Then give him to this system that's not bibli biblically centered and you, you'll do that. And of course, um, man, man understood that. A horse man understood that. And that was his goal, though, because he, his worldview, uh, a humanistic worldview, uh, told him that that was the right thing to do. Unfortunately, Bishop Hughes' warning seemed to fall in deaf ears. The Protestant General Assembly of Massachusetts said this in their minutes in that year. They said, it is, however, a great evil to withdraw from the established system of common schools the interest and influence of the religious part of the community. If after a full and faithful experiment, it should at last be seen that fidelity to the religious interests of our children forbids further patronage of the system, we can unite with the evangelical Christians in the establishment of private schools in which more full doctrinal religious instruction may be possible. So the Protestant General Assembly, which you know, is Protestant at the time, but it's a, it's a mixed bag. Some are evangelical Protestants, some are liberal Protestants in, in different places on that spectrum. But nonetheless, their thought was, we, we can't abandon the public school system because we need our children in there to have a religious influence. But as they declared through this one bill, or one statement that was recorded, just kind of a, not an official law, of course, but as we make proclamations today, if it turns out to be a failure, then we will withdraw. Well, I hate to say it, but it's, it's a failure. 1870, Protestant religious schools are virtually gone, with the exception of one Lutheran system 
in Missouri, the Protestant private school has been at this point literally wiped off the map in America. And the influence that they had was now gone. 1900, 700,000 students are in United States high schools. By the turn of the century, the American educational system is really solidly established. Uh, we went from a total of 69 public high schools in 1860, uh, where they had reached a point where by 1900 where public high schools were commonplace. Today, there are 26,407 public high schools in America. Averaged out over 50 states, that's about 528 per state. Some, of course, having much more, others having less. But by 1900, public education is firmly established in America. 1904, another critical date, John Dewey joins Columbia faculty. Uh, John Dewey, if you know his name, he's dubbed the father of progressive education and he joins the faculty of Columbia University, which in the 20th century, without doubt, became the leading uh, school that influenced American education. Uh, people don't debate it. Uh, even today, if you know anything about John Dewey, they say that he did more in the 20th century to influence public education than any other single person. Uh, why is that significant? Well, number one, he believed that a person's faith ought to be in science and evolution and not the Bible. He thought that children could be trained like animals using modern Freudian techniques of psychology. He taught that religion and traditional values were an obstacle to the social progress of our children. Um, a lot of his ideas, of course, were put on paper. 1933, the next date, the Humanist Manifesto is written. Dewey, of course, who's a confessed, was a confessed atheist. He was a board member of the American Humanist Society. In 1933, he hammered out the first Humanist Manifesto. Uh, he's given credit as being the principal architect of that doc document. What did Dewey believe and what did that document reflect? Well, if you've read it, you know it says that truth is relative, that there are no absolutes, that the evolutionary theory is valid, and he affirmed, quote, there is no God and there is no soul. Dewey and 33 other signers of this document rejected God and the supernatural and of course they replaced that with reason and science. So what does the humanist of the 21st century believe? Well, it hasn't changed much. Humanist Manifesto 2 was put out in 1973. The tenets are basically the same. Let me quote from the document. Man is basically good. There's no life after deaths. So it's man's best interest to find the good life here and now. They advocate sexual activity and promiscuity for the young and old. They advocate the free use of pornography. They endorse homosexuality, prostitution, abortion, all in the name of human rights. Let me give some other quotes concerning religion. They say, faith uh, in, in, in prayer is, uh, is unproved and is an outmoded concept. Concerning God, they said, there is no deity to save us. We must save ourselves. Concerning ethics, they write, ethics are autonomous and situational, needing no theological or ideological sanction. Concerning sex, they write, there should be a right to birth control, access to it, abortion and divorce should be readily recognized. Concerning government, they said, we affirm a set of common principles which are designed for a secular society on a planetary scale. Charles Potter, who was a leading colleague of John Dewey, said this. Education, he wrote this in a book called Humanism and New Religion. Uh, and it was a publication that would be similar to what Christianity today was in the 50s, 60s, and 70s in this country. He said, and I quote, education is thus a most powerful ally of humanism. And every American school is a school of humanism. 
What can a theistic Sunday school meeting for an hour once a week and teaching only a fraction of the children do to stem the tide of a five-day program of humanistic teaching? He was on track. He knew for the church to have your children a few hours a week in the public school system to have them every day. He knew who was going to win. You say, well, why is this important? Well, because the NEA, National Educational Association, is still the leading force of what happens in American education. And 76% say that they claim the Humanist Manifesto too. Um, so the thinking of its leadership has not changed. Certainly there are people from the NEA who oppose it, but 76% say they espouse the humanistic values. 1957, really important date, federal aid to education. A dream comes true for the humanists. It was something that Horace Mann had thought about. He wanted a public education system that was controlled from the top down. It was something that John Dewey advocated. But up until 1956, all public education that was in place was state-run only. The federal government was not involved in education in America. But it was a dream come true because they knew that if they could make states dependent on federal aid, that from the top down they could begin to craft a national school board, so to speak. And so in 1956, there was 26,000 local school boards in America. Today, there's less than 1,800. So we went from a state-controlled, largely community-controlled, public education system in America to one that is now largely federally controlled, states dependent on federal control with much less parental involvement. Of course, 1962, 1963 are also important dates. Prayer and Bible reading is outlawed from public schools. The U.S. Supreme Court issued two bans on prayer in public schools. The first ban came in 1962, the second in 1963. Uh, if you remember the cases, they were a result of a woman who's now dead, though. We still get mail at our church office warning us of Madeline Mary O'Hare's desire to get Christian radio off the air. Uh, there's some document that goes around and drives the FCC nuts. She's been dead for some time now. But um, she was the one who filed a, a lawsuit to the Supreme Court of the United States uh, saying that prayer and Bible reading was unconstitutional. And she used, of course, at the time her son, William Murray, uh, who, of course, later comes to Christ. Um, his mother, of course, was, uh, she's the most evil woman I've ever heard speak. I heard her speak at the University of North Carolina in 1978 to about a thousand college university students. If a man of God can be filled and anointed with the Spirit of God, that was a woman who is filled and anointed by the devil. I mean, she was unbelievable. In 1980, she said this about her son. One could call this a postnatal abortion on the part of a mother, I guess. I repudiate him entirely and completely. Now and for all time, he is beyond human forgiveness. So she uses her son. Of course, where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. And God ends up bringing that man to Christ. He's the president today of the Religious Freedom Foundation in Washington, D.C. that fights for Christian freedoms here and around the world. Um, by this time, education in America becomes anti-Christian. And so on June 25th, 1962, the Supreme Court declared prayer unconstitutional. And on that day, Senator Robert Byrd of West Virginia, now dead, he made an uh, outraged plea to his colleagues in Congress, reminding them of our religious heritage. Now, whether Byrd was a born-again Christian, I'm not here to say or to judge. 
but he was certainly a moral man in many ways and whether he was an evangelical Christian or not he recognized and understood our religious heritage. His speech started with these words. He said in no other place in the United States are there so many official evidences of faith in God on the part of government as there are in Washington. On the south banks of Washington's tidal basin, Jefferson still speaks. Can the liberties of a nation be secure when we have removed a conviction that these liberties are the gift of God? Indeed, I tremble for my country when I reflect that God is just and his justice cannot sleep forever. End of quote. There, of course, from that man. In his message, and if you haven't read it, it's worth reading, he, he verbally escorts his colleagues through the Christian symbolism throughout the nation's capital. Let me refresh your mind with a few of them. He reminds them that the phrase, in God we trust, appears opposite the president of the Senate, of course, who's the vice president of the United States. The same words, in God we trust, he reminded them, are inscribed in the marble behind the Speaker of the House in the House of Representatives. Above the head of the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court are the Ten Commandments with the great American eagle protecting them. Moses, on the front of the Supreme Court, is included amongst the great lawgivers and that beautiful marble uh, carving across the top of the building. And of course, the crier of the Supreme Court opens with these words every day, God save the United States and the Honorable Court. At the very top of the Washington Monument, there's a metal cap, and inscribed are these words, praise be to God. And if you've ever been up this stairway, I think it's closed right now, there are phrases like search the scriptures, holiness to the Lord, train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he'll not depart from it. You walk into the Library of Congress and there are quotes, Bird reminded them, like Micah 6, 8. What do, doth the Lord require of thee but to do justly and love mercy and to walk humbly with thy God? In addition, there is Psalm 19, 1. The heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament showeth his handiwork. And still John 1, 5. The light shineth in the darkness and the darkness comprehendeth it not. He reminded them that millions of people had been to the Lincoln Memorial and saw these words chiseled on the wall, that this nation under God shall have a new birth of freedom, and that government of the people, by the people, and for the people shall not perish from the earth. And then he reminded them on the opposite north wall in his second inaugural address, there are words in Lincoln's speech including such things as God, the Bible, Providence, the Almighty, and the divine attributes. And he closed his speech by saying, Jefferson's words are a forceful and explicit warning that to remove God from this country will destroy it. So we threw God out officially in the 1960s. And there was not a vacuum. That vacuum was quickly filled. In 1940, they listed the top offenses in public schools in America. And this is what was on their list. Talking out of turn, chewing gum, running in the halls, making noise, not putting paper in the wastebaskets, getting out of turn in line. That was pretty much what it was like when I was a student in grammar school in the 1960s. The top offenses of the decade from 2000 to 2010 include rape, robbery, assault, personal theft, drug abuse, arson, bombings, alcohol abuse, carrying of weapons, absenteeism, vandalism, murder, extortion, gang warfare, pregnancies, abortion, suicide, STDs, lying, and cheating. The next date, 1965, the Christian school movement is launched. Thousands of Christian schools started in the mid-60s. They said one approximately every seven hours and so during two decades really in 15 years approximately 15,000 Christian schools started in America. So the Christian school movement explodes because people realize we've turned God out from our public school system. 1975 is a date that many would put as the rebirth of home education. Uh, desiring to return to a biblical model, desiring to have parents assume responsibility for the education of their children, people once again began to homeschool. And of course now it's legal in all 50 states. 2010, it was estimated that approximately 
2,500,000 children grades K through 12 are now currently home educated. Um, and it continues to grow. So that's where we've been and where we've come. Uh, so let's talk about some of the advantages to home education. First, uh, certainly it's tutorial instruction. If you could ask a professional educator, what's the Cadillac education? They would say, well, a one-on-one -on -one tutorial kind of setting, but nobody can afford that except extremely wealthy people. Well, really, in one sense, that's what you're doing in a home educational setting. You're giving personalized tutorial instruction, crafting a curriculum in uh, meeting the specific needs of a given child. So you're able to give attention to the individual needs of your child. Sometimes, you know, kids develop differently in different ways and at different times. It's like learning how to walk. Um, you know, my, one of my granddaughters just started walking about a week ago. Uh, she's barely walking, but, you know, a few steps here and there. Um, and she's uh, 15 months old. You know, we've had other children. Her mother, I think, walked at nine months. Sooner or later, all kids learn to walk. Reading is kind of similar. Uh, we had some of our children reading at three. We had one child who did math and all kinds of problems before uh, that child knew how to read, and it wasn't until the child was eight, almost nine, and all of a sudden, just something clicked in the brain. We thought, Lord, why is this child so slow? But we just have to trust you with it, and all of a sudden, clicked. So kids are different, but if you have them in a public setting, oh, by that time the child would have been labeled, this and that. And, um, so it allows you to meet the individual needs that a child has and to craft the curriculum accordingly. It gives you control over what they're going to learn. Um, you know, certainly you want your children to have a broad education. You want them to understand, say, the principles that are behind evolution. But you want them to understand why a lot of really intelligent Christian people, and even not necessarily born-again Christians, but people in the scientific community, don't ascribe to evolution. I mean, do they just throw their brain out and put it on a shelf? To say, well, we're going to blindly accept, you know, creationism. Well, the fact that the Bible says it should be enough. But the scientific evidence is absolutely overwhelming. But very often you get a very limited perspective. And so evolution, for instance, is taught as fact. Now in some states, like Texas especially, they've tried to offer, you know, an alternative by teaching creation science. But for the most part in America, sometimes our education is very one-sided. Well, you have control over the curriculum. Um, and it allows you, too, to um, allow your child to excel accordingly. Well, one of the things about um, home education is it's very personalized. If you have ever taught a large groups of people, 30 or 40, that would say be a typical class size in public education in America, then you know that kids learn at different rates. There's some kids who are just like, they get it fast, they want to go on to the next thing, but as a teacher, you have to deal with this the slowest student, this the fastest student, and everyone in between. Because you're teaching a herd. But when the, the numbers are narrowed to a few, then you can meet the needs. Sometimes you have a student who will excel greatly in math and maybe not blossom as quickly in reading, uh, in reading or, or, or the reverse could be true. So you can shape the curriculum to meet the need and to move the child along. Uh, it certainly brings the family together. You're, you're with your child. Now sometimes people come through home education seminars and they say, well, you know, I just... I just have trouble being with my kids all day. Uh, I, you know, I, it's hard. And I, 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 it's, a, it's a relief when I put them on the school bus and send them off. And I just don't know if I can do it. Well, that's a, that's a bad perspective. To not want to be with your kids. And sometimes people have to start there and just be honest with God and say, God, I, I, I don't want to be with my children. I mean, where does that mindset come from? Well, the, the mindset comes from 
the prince of the power of the air, Ephesians 2, 1 to 3, who's working in a society and crafting it. And so, you know, women today are taught that to stay home and educate your children, well, that's a worthless prospect. If you're really a woman of significance, you'll get a career, you'll, um, you know, be a doctor or a lawyer, and, and you might be. But if God blesses you with children, then he blesses you with responsibility. And God's idea of success is sometimes very different from what the world thinks. So it brings the family together, gives you time with your children. Um, Deuteronomy 6 talks about teaching your children as you walk in the way, as you lay down, as you rise up. There's an assumption in that passage when God gives the Shema. Shema is the Hebrew word most of you know for hear. Hear, O Israel, the Lord thy God is one God. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. And these words of time teaching must first be in your heart so that you in turn can teach them to your children as you walk in the way, as you lay down, as you rise up. So the ability to teach our children to love God assumes that we're with our children. And if they're never in our presence or we send them off to a, a public or maybe even a private setting and then we're at work all day and we, we come home and and you're a mom and you're trying to uh, carry out what you're going to do as a woman, there, there, there are differences between men and women. I could care less if the cabinet doors in my kitchen are closed, except for the fact that it's important to my wife. She knows when I've been through the kitchen. There's doors open all over the place. But my wife has a different perspective on the home. You know, and when I was single, you know, I left my clothes on the floor. But my wife, you know, she runs a different kind of ship because she has a different mentality of what's important. And God created that nurturing dimension within her. Now, there are other things that she doesn't have that I have. I'm called to be a provider and the protector of my home and so forth. And so, it really gives you time with your children. To be with them. And sometimes families have to reconfigure their priorities. Sometimes they have made some financial decisions that have been very unwise and very unbiblical and uh, have put them in deep debt and now they have moral obligations such that the ideal that a mother, as Titus chapter 2 teaches, be a worker at home cannot be carried out. And so they have to recraft and refigure and rehone priorities. This is why, as a pastor, when I marry someone, they're required to get marriage counseling, a minimum of six one hour appointments. And they have approximately 18 to 20 hours of homework that they have to do. And part of that homework includes uh, a budget. Now, really, it's my opinion, but I think that dads ought to be able to teach their children how to manage money. I mean, where does a child learn to manage a checkbook? The proper use of a credit card to prepay a home mortgage. Where, well, if, if I don't teach my children that, then they're going to have to get it somewhere. And unfortunately, most um, young people who want to get married don't have those skills in place. And so one of the things I teach them is to live on one salary, his salary, until God blesses them with children so that they don't make financial decisions that demand two salaries to meet those moral obligations. So we help them to think through ahead of time so that they can be at home with their children, that they don't pass their child on to a daycare. Now, I know churches today, they're in the daycare business. People ask me all the time, I'm in and out of town, will Community Bible Church open up a daycare? We'd love Community Bible Church to have one. Well, you know, I, I could see the value of a daycare if it was a ministry exclusively to single moms. Though I don't know of a church in America that has a daycare exclusively to single moms. But when a church opens up a daycare, they're basically sanctioning a model that is against the Word of God. But many pastors are doing it because their wives are doing the very thing that God counsels against. 
And ideally, if a mom is single and she's given the responsibility of raising her children alone, and we have a few dozen single, probably three dozen single moms in our church right now, uh, a better setting typically is uh, a home environment than an institutional daycare. It gives you control over socialization. A common question, I'm asked at every seminar, myself or my wife. And by the way, my wife teaches this with me every time, but was unable to do it tonight. So I apologize. She wanted to be here. But it's kind of like uh, Dr. Paragoff. Anybody know who Dr. Paragoff was? He was a very famous uh, Russian doctor. Spent the last decades of his life in Ukraine. He uh, developed anesthesia. Uh, he was a doctor who fought that whole plan up. Anyway, he would go and he would lecture. Um, and he would have the man who, you know, ran his carriage come with him. And, and his carriage driver said to him, Dr. Paragraph, Dr. Paragraph, I've heard your lecture so many times, I think I could give you a lecture. So Dr. Paragraph said, I, you know, I'm kind of tired. He said, I'll tell you what. We'll go to the next place. Nobody knows us. They don't even know what I look like. And we'll make you Dr. Park Paragoff, and I'll be your chauffeur, so to speak. So they go, and the guy begins to give a lecture and gives it perfectly, almost word for word, what Dr. Park Paragoff would say, and comes to the question and answer things, able to answer a number of questions. Finally, there's a question he just stumped, and he said, you know, that question is so simple, I think I'll get my chauffeur to answer it. <laughs> well, I, I've heard my wife enough, so I think I can answer some of the questions that you may have from her perspective, because we've been home educating for a long, long time. But a common question we're asked is, what about socialization? Listen, your kids are going to be socialized. It's not a matter of, um, unless you live maybe on Montana and your closest neighbor is three miles away, your children are going to be socialized. And by the way, if you were in that kind of setting and God providentially had you there, that wouldn't necessarily be a bad thing. One of the mindsets that the youth culture has fostered and it's something that we've tried to counter at Community Bible Church by encouraging parents to be involved with their kids in youth ministry. But a mindset that is fostered is it's uncool to be with your parents. That you don't want to be with your parents. And we want to foster an entirely different mindset. So your kids will be socialized. The question is, what kind of socialization will they get? Um... He who walks with the wise, it's listed down here, Proverbs 13, 20, will be wise or becomes wise, but a companion of fools suffers harm. If your children are constantly with their peers, and if foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child as the Bible reveals, then your child is not going to potentially become wise, but become, going to become foolish. And as the culture becomes more and more godless and anti-Christian, and children are feeding on that, and they're socializing with your children day after day, week after week, it's going to influence your children. So it gives you control over socialization. It allows you to become a student of your child to see his strengths or his weaknesses and really to cultivate a lifelong learning. And we'll talk about that in a second. You know, when I was in grammar school, I couldn't wait, even in junior high, until summer break came because there was no homework and no required reading. And my mind shut down. Because I didn't have a mindset where there was really a love for learning. And what is really exciting, and we're going to talk in just a few minutes of how to help this process, is to cultivate a love for learning in the hearts of your children. And homeschooling allows you to do that.